is Rebecca Meitinger. Today we are continuing on our journey through the letter of 1 Peter. I tell you what, this series, which I thought was going to be just four weeks, is stretching out much longer than that because I am taking forever (laughs) to get around to recording these podcasts. Summer is so full. Summer is wonderful. I love it. It's been awesome. But it is so full. I'm really struggling to find time to record podcasts and even time to study. Uh, my my driving my kids around is in full gear. And so I'm, I'm struggling to make time for this. And also, as I study, I am finding that there's so much wonderful content that I can't take an entire chapter at a time because then the podcast, like the last one, reaches about 50 minutes. So I am going to be taking the chapters in half. Um, so that would make five chapters equals 10 weeks. And then because I am taking so long to record them, <laughs> it might take most of our summer, June and July anyway, for us to work through First Peter. Um So if you are following along the podcast and you're thinking, my goodness, Rebecca is stretching this out almost to every two weeks between her podcasts, that's true. I hope to do better. And I am just trying to find a rhythm in my summer. But summer is one of those times in our life, for our family anyway, that there really is no rhythm. The rhythm is pretty much uh, drive your kids around (laughs) to all their stuff and then go to bed at night. And then the next day, drive my kids around to all their stuff, which, by the way, I love doing. I'm so blessed to be able to get to do that. I love it. So I certainly don't mean to be complaining about that. I'm just saying I'm having a hard time podcasting. Today's chapter that we are looking at is really rich. It is uh, the chapter chapter 2 of 1 Peter. And Peter is going to go back into some context that he is pulling out of the Old Testament One of the things that I have learned a lot about this year as I have listened to another of my own favorite podcasters who is Jewish by heritage, he has been teaching me a great deal just about how much the the Jewish disciples and the Jewish writers of scripture, and specifically the Jewish writers of the New Testament, how much they knew and memorized the entire Old Testament. And so as they were writing down the letters and gospel accounts in the New Testament, they were pulling things out of the Old Testament because the text is so in them. They know the text. And then the readers, particularly the Jewish readers, not necessarily the Gentile readers of of the New Testament letters in that first century, they would have immediately understood the incredible context that the New Testament writers are pulling out of the Old Testament in ways that you and I can barely begin to scratch the surface of how incredible this is that they are using and applying things that were written uh, a thousand years before they were writing. And uh, and so today we're going to see some of that. We're going to dig into it as best we can. We are going to look into just chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And then in the next podcast, 
which hopefully will be in about a week, um, I will cover verses 11 through 25 of chapter 2. So today we're going to look into 1 Peter chapter 2, starting at verse 1. But before we get to verse 1, I want to remind us where we've been, because he's going to say therefore, and we have to ask, what is the therefore, therefore? <laughs> and he's going to start by telling them how to live. So we have to think, okay, what what is he saying therefore in regards to while well, he goes into describing how to live well he had just said to them in verse 22 of chapter 1 he said now that you have purified yourself through faith in Christ love each other and then he reiterated he like doubled down and he's like and then he said love each other deeply from the heart so if we're going to love each other deeply from the heart he says, therefore, like as a means of loving each other deeply from the hearts, rid yourselves. So now I'm in chapter 2, verse 1. He says, therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. If you are really going to love each other deeply from the heart as believers in Christ, as a, a body of Christ, and remember, let's get some of our really important context in our mind. He's writing to a, to a group of Christians who are mixed nationality and not simply mixed nationality, but really have been enemies in the past. The Jewish people who are God's chosen people did not understand super well, although they, they were grasping it more and more. But they were having, some of them, some of them, were having a slower and more difficult time grasping the fact that God was including the Gentiles. And so amongst the Jews and the Gentiles, as more and more Gentiles came into the church and became believers in Jesus, and as more of the Jews understood that in Christ there is no Jew or Gentile, like that is a very strong message of Paul, and we see Peter giving the same message, that in Christ there is no dividing walls between you. He has knocked the dividing walls down. That is a text straight from Ephesians chapter 2. So get rid of all of the malice that you have. You have malice. You have been raised thinking that you are enemies, but get rid of all of that. Get rid of all deceit between you. Get rid of your hypocrisy, envy, and slander. Now, of course, he's not just talking about these things in relation to the Jew-Gentile situation. He's talking about in all your human relationships with people of your own nationality, people from different nationalities, your own um like-mindedness, different like-mindedness, like whatever the difference is, get rid of, he doesn't say get rid of your differences or get rid of your disagreements. He makes, like he doesn't say that we have to get rid of all disagreement. He's just saying in your differences, in your disagreements, get rid of malice and deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Get rid of it. If you are going to really love each other deeply from the heart, get rid of that stuff. And then he goes on to say, like, newborn ba babies. All right, well, he already told us in, um, in verse 23 of chapter 1. So verse 22 I already read. He was telling them to love each other deeply from the heart. And then in verse 23, he says, You have been born again, not of perishable seed, 
but out of imperishable seed, the word of God. So since you've been born again, he, he is then comparing them to a, a baby, like a newborn baby, crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. I just love this idea of growing up in your salvation. Last week we talked a lot also about this whole like working out your salvation. He goes back to that same theme right here. That is from Philippians chapter 2. The Apostle Paul writes, work out your salvation. Not that you are saving yourself, but you have been saved. Now work it out. Walk in sanctification. And here Paul writes, or Peter writes, I want you to grow up in your salvation. How are you going to grow up in your salvation? By feeding on pure spiritual milk. What is pure spiritual milk? (laughs) We might be like, what in the world? That is an unusual um, metaphor. Not really. Pure spiritual milk, like... Babies need milk. They, they cannot live without milk and formula or their mother's milk. I, I, was, I formula fed my babies, so I'm totally in favor of that. But it is, it is what the babies need. And what we need is scripture. It is essential. It is not optional. It is not... Well, if you want to just have your best life, you should read scripture. No, if you want life, period, read scripture. You need spiritual milk. It has all of the nutrients and fortifications that you need to live for Jesus, to follow Jesus, to know who God is, to know how to live in this world. You need scripture. It's not optional. And it is by that pure spiritual milk that we grow up in our salvation. We mature in our salvation. It's not through scripture that I'm saved. I'm saved by faith in Jesus Christ, by grace through faith from what Jesus did on the cross. That's how I'm saved. But as I study scripture, it is not to be saved that I study scripture, but that it is to grow up in my salvation, to mature my salvation, to make me a useful servant of Christ, to serve the kingdom of God, to grow the kingdom of God. Uh, That is why I study scripture. And why do we do this? Because we have tasted, it's verse 3 of chapter 2, because we have now tasted that the Lord is good. Scripture is good and we need it. We need scripture. Verse 4, as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Okay, that's a big, (laughs) that's a lot right there. So I just wanted to read it all because it's actually all one sentence. And now I want to break it down. That was verses four and five. So it says, Peter writes, as you come to Jesus, the living stone, Okay, I want to pause right there and talk about this living stone a little bit. In just a few more verses, Peter is going to dive deeper into this, and he is going to talk about some, he's going to bring in some prophecies from the Old Testament 
that uh, we're, we are going to talk about when we when we get there. But before we do that, I just want to deal with this living stone. I love that Peter is writing. First of all, the word living is really important to Peter. He has already said in chapter 1, verse 3, that we have been... Uh, been giving a new birth into a living hope and now he was just that's in um, chapter 1 verse 3 so he's using that word living that we have a living hope and he says that we were born into that so now he says since you were born into the living hope you are like newborn babies drink your spiritual milk and come to the living stone so living is a very important word to Peter and then he talks about how we have been born through the imperishable seed which is through the living word of god so the word of god is living our hope is living and the stone that we come to the capital s stone that we come to is living if you are listening along and you aren't looking at your bible i just want you to know that um, in chapter 2 verse 4 which is what i just read as you come to him which is jesus the living stone stone is capitalized Jesus is that living stone. Another thing that I think is so cool that Peter is doing here is, if you remember back to the gospel accounts, or maybe you haven't heard this before, so I just want to share this with you. Peter is actually initially, um, like his born given name is Simon, and Jesus changes his name to Peter, which means the rock. Now, we've talked about that a little bit in previous podcasts, here, I, I have to think that Peter's thinking about this. He goes by the name Peter exclusively throughout, um, ever since Jesus ascended. Like on the beach, we talked about this a couple weeks ago when Jesus was reinstating Peter in John chapter one, 21. Jesus was asking Peter three times, do you love me? And when he did that, each time he said, Simon, son of John. He used his name Simon. And then... Um, ever since that point, after he reinstated Peter, Peter is only Peter. He's not Simon. I think there are a few times in the book of Acts where he's Simon Peter, but he's never just Simon anymore. He is Peter. He is the rock. And so I think it's really significant. It must be significant, I think, that Peter here is maybe making a, a bit of play on his own name even, that Jesus called me the rock, although there's some debate about that, which we'll get to. Uh, but Jesus is the one who's the living stone, capital S, stone. Jesus is the living stone. I want to jump back into Matthew when Peter gets this name from Jesus. And I just want to share how that how that went. Because I said there's a little bit of debate about, is Peter being called the rock? Or possibly is his declaration being called the rock like his declaration of faith is that the rock and i think either way it is wonderful (laughs) and very very possible either way you take it so i'm going to jump back to matthew chapter 16. um let's see here yes there it is okay so jesus was just asking his disciples who do you who, who are people saying that i am like what's the word on the street What are you hearing? What do people think? And so in verse 13, Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, and he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? They replied, some say that you're John the Baptist, 
Others say Elijah, still others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you? Jesus asked. Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, meaning the rock. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. So the question is, some some divisions of the Christian church or some some people in the in the Christian church at large, like the the whole body of Christ, may say, no, Jesus said, Peter, you are the rock. You are the rock that I'm going to build my church on. Other people say, and I think that I would line up a little bit more with this mindset, um, Peter means rock. I shouldn't say it means the rock. It means rock. And I think the declaration that Peter made Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Like he just lays down this profound, absolute, true declaration. And I think Jesus is saying on this rock, on this absolute truth, on this rock, I will build my church. The rock of my true identity, I am the Messiah, the Son of the living God. On this declaration, I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So I would I would be a little bit more inclined to, to go that route, that it's the declaration. But either way, Jesus gives Peter the name Rock uh, because of Peter's profound, rock-solid declaration. And so here, uh, Jesus, or I think Peter, is thinking about that and saying Jesus is the living stone. Like, my name means rock. The declaration that I made, Jesus said, this is the rock on which I'm going to build my church. But Jesus himself is the living stone. Jesus himself is the one that the church is built on. He is the foundation, the living foundation of the church. He was, verse 4 goes on, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to God. And then he says to the people he's writing to, and just remember, they are Jews and Gentiles alike. He says in verse 5, You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now this is amazing on so many levels. It's amazing for the Jews because what he's telling them is that you are you are the priesthood. The priesthood is not just the line of Levi anymore. It's not just the priest who can go to the temple once a year and go into the Holy of Holies and make a sacrifice on behalf of the people. That is That was the Old Testament system, but now you are, you all are the holy priesthood, and you are being built into a spiritual house. So, In AD 70, which is just probably slightly after Peter wrote this letter, the Romans came into Jerusalem and attacked the city of Jerusalem, and that is when the temple fell. Um, This letter was probably written around 63 AD, so about seven years after this, the whole temple was going to be fallen. 
And, um, you know, whether or not Peter had insight into that, you know, if God had told him that, I'm not sure. But what Peter is telling the people here is that you are the spiritual house. You are, like, as a body of Christ, you are the house. You are the temple. You all are priests now, not just the line of Levi that's the priests. Now, let's go a step further. So this was, like, amazing for the Jews to hear. Now let's step it further out to the Gentiles. He's saying this to the Gentiles and and he is saying this to the Jews about the Gentiles. That he wants all of them to know that the Gentiles also are like living stones. Um, you know, Jesus, says, Jesus told Peter that his name is the rock. And now Peter is spreading that out like you guys are stones too. You're living stones too. And you are being built together, Jews and Gentiles together into the spiritual house. You all are being built together into the temple. You are the temple of God, not as an individual, but as the collective whole body of Christ, Jews and Gentiles, male and female, slaves and free. You are all together being built into the spiritual house of God. You are holy priests. You get to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. It doesn't have to be goats and sheep and lambs anymore. It's spiritual sacrifices. It is your acts of worship. It is your acts of service. It is loving each other. It is caring for each other. It is carrying the burdens of one another. That is our spiritual act of worship acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. I want to jump and read something very, very similar that the Apostle Paul wrote. Let me think here. Really close to the same time. Okay, so I'm going to read from Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians was probably written in about 62 AD. First Peter was probably written in about 63 or 64 AD. So really, really similar time. Did Peter read Paul's letter to the Ephesians? I don't know. Paul wrote from Rome Peter was probably in Rome at or around the same time. Did Peter get to read that letter? The, I don't know. The letter to the Ephesians was a circular letter, but if Peter was in Rome, I don't know that he would have been able to get, get a copy of it. Um, maybe he saw Paul and they talked about these things. That's very possible if they were both in Rome at the same time. You know, I never thought of that. My mind is starting to blow right now a little bit. It's believed that Peter was in Rome in the 60s and Paul was living in his house prison. And what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2 is very similar to what Peter is writing here in 1 Peter 2. Did Peter go visit Paul while Paul was in his house prison and they talk about these things? That, oh man, my, my mind is going to explode. <laughs> that is just so wonderful. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? Like, wouldn't you want to be there as Peter and Paul sit together while Paul was in shackles? We don't know that Peter was in shackles at the same time. We don't think so, possibly. Um, and, well, not with Paul. He wouldn't have been with Paul. So then he would not have been in shackles. Anyway, if they had, like, sat together and talked through these things as Paul was in prison. <gasps> so wonderful. Okay, but anyway, so what Paul wrote... In Ephesians chapter 2, 
I'm going to start reading at um, verse 18, or sorry, verse 14. He wrote this, For Jesus himself is our peace, who has made the two groups, okay, that's the Jews and the Gentiles, into one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose in himself was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, out of the Jews and Gentiles to make one new humanity, namely the church, thus making peace. And in one body, the church, (laughs) to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through him we have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but you are fellow citizens with God's people and members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, which Jesus, with Jesus Christ himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. Okay, the whole building there refers to not a building at all. Jesus Christ is the center chief cornerstone that is the first stone laid in a building to make sure that the entire building was was sure and straight so that the chief cornerstone was in stone masonry it was that very first stone that was laid to make sure the entire foundation would be true and right jesus is the chief cornerstone and the building that is being built on top of him is in fact the church So this goes back again to when Jesus told Peter, on this rock, I will build my church. And that's why personally, just personally, I don't think that the rock that Jesus built his church on was Peter himself. I think the rock that Jesus built his church on is the declaration that you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, yes, on this rock. The declaration that Jesus is the son of the living God and the Messiah who saves the world on that rock, the church is built. Jesus himself is the chief cornerstone. And he says that on this rock, the the whole household, the whole building will come together, uh, will rise up as a holy temple in the Lord. So that was Ephesians 2 verse 21. And then in 22, he says, in him, in Christ, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Now, take note, there is no actual physical building going on here. What he's talking about is the church, that the church, Jews and Gentiles, slaves and free, male and female, are coming together with all barriers having been broken down through Jesus on the cross. There are no more barriers left, and you are coming together as the church to being built up as a holy temple for the Lord. And again, I don't know if Peter and Paul had foresight from God, if God had given them vision to know that the temple in Jerusalem is going to be destroyed um, in 70 AD. So eight letters after Paul wrote this letter to Ephesians, six or seven years after Peter wrote this letter to uh, the people in what is now Northern Turkey. I don't know if they had like vision about that. 
but they are certainly telling the people you are the new temple. As a body of Christ, you are the new temple. Not as individuals. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul is writing about sexual purity and sexual immorality. And he does in that context say that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Don't join your body with with that of a prostitute is what he says. Um, In that context only is the temple of the Holy Spirit referred to as one person's body, like my own body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Now that's true. That does, I don't want to take anything away from that. I, I have taught many, 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 many lessons on biblical sexuality, and I love teaching that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit as an individual. But much more in Scripture, the much bigger metaphor in Scripture is that the church Together, the whole Christian church is a temple of the Holy Spirit where God dwells and that in that we are priests for God. We are a holy priesthood. All right, let's move on. We are back into 1 Peter uh, in chapter 2. And here is a section where Peter is going to start quoting the Old Testament. He says... For in scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. So there he's quoting from Isaiah 28, verse 16. And now I just want to talk just a little bit about what the first readers, when Isaiah, excuse me, when Isaiah read this, or when Isaiah wrote this, it would have been about like 600 B.C., when Isaiah wrote this, and he meant something. His words meant something to the people then that they understood in their context. When we read this, we read it, and the way Peter is using it here, so it's totally biblical, we read this and say, oh, the stone that that God laid in Zion is Jesus, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Yes, Absolutely. I would say that that is uh, the second fulfillment of that prophecy. But it meant something for a first fulfillment too. So I've been studying like, okay, what is the stone that God laid in Zion that the people who read this in 600 BC when Isaiah wrote it, what did they understand this to mean? And um, I'm not getting a lot of help from my commentaries because my commentaries simply have pointed me to Jesus. Jesus is the stone in Zion. And I and I get that. I'm like, yes, you are right. But what did the first readers realize it was? So at first I was going on the train of like Israel. Like, is Israel the stone in Zion that um, those who trust in Israel as the people of God, so like the people surrounding, because God was always welcoming to the Gentiles. Like that is not a new thing after Jesus. There's so many Gentiles in the Old Testament as well, like Rahab, one of my favorite women in the Old Testament, she's a Gentile woman. Ruth was a Gentile woman. There are lots of Gentile people in the Old Testament. In fact, even going back to the Exodus, like many Egyptians, the Egyptians were invited to join the people of Israel. Um, and many Egyptians did, we're, we learn, uh, live with the Israelites in the desert and free, you know, they walked out of Egypt free as well. And so um, God has always been open to the Gentiles. So when he says the one who trusts in him, like the one who trusts 
that Israel is my chosen people will never be put to shame. So I think that's one possibility that the stone, like when the people heard it in 600 BC, they weren't thinking ahead to the coming Messiah. What did they think was the stone in Zion? I think the Israel is one possibility. And then I think the other possibility that I think maybe is more likely is God's presence, that God himself, because the temple was there in 600 BC, that would be the first temple that King Solomon built, would have still been standing, I think, when Isaiah was prophesying. It hadn't yet been uh, torn down by the Babylonians yet, to my best understanding of the timeline. And... So I think, so that's the presence of God, because God dwelled in the temple, especially in the Holy of Holies. That was God's presence. So it's not so much about the, the stones and the cement of the actual temple, but the presence of God, where God chose to dwell in that temple, in Jerusalem, in the Holy of Holies. I think that might be what God is really referring to there in that Isaiah passage, Isaiah 28, 16, when he says, I laid a stone in Zion, chosen and a chosen and precious cornerstone like my presence is the cornerstone and the one who trusts in him meaning god will never be put to shame so i think first god is talking about his own presence and then of course peter is using this now after the resurrection and ascension of jesus to say ultimately this stone that's in zion is jesus it's jesus and that's really exciting. And the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Jesus is the chief cornerstone. Then in verse 7, um, it says, Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. And I love this too because in, the, in chapter 1, if you remember from the previous podcasts, we learned a lot about how he, Peter keeps comparing things to gold and silver, which are, we would call those precious gems, Right? But he has been talking about how Jesus is more precious. He's more precious. His The blood of Christ is more precious. And, uh, and so here he is saying, this stone, this stone, Jesus, is precious. Then he goes on to say, but those to those who do not believe, and then he this is in quotation marks again in verse 7, he says, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Okay, the builders rejected, the builders would be the chief priests. Uh, the chief priests, as you read through the gospel accounts, the Sadducees and the chief priests are absolutely the ones who are primarily responsible for rejecting and killing Jesus. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Now, here's what's really cool about this. (laughs) So Peter is definitely quoting the Old Testament here, but he's also quoting Jesus. So in Matthew 21, I have all my bookmarks in my Bible here, but it looks like my bookmark from Matthew 21 fell out. (laughs) Okay, so in Matthew 21... Jesus is talking to the chief priests and he says to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? And the Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. Then, then the uh, Matthew 
narrating goes on and says, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus's parables, they knew he was talking about them. And they looked for a way to arrest them, him. But they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. So Jesus tells them, he says the exact same thing to them, quoting Psalm 118, verse 22. He quotes it and says, um, hey, this is about you. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Me, I'm, you're rejecting me. I'm going to become the corner. I am the cornerstone. And then they, they knew he was talking about them. And so they got scared and started looking for a way to arrest him. And then Peter brings in another quotation from Isaiah 8, verse 14, that says, A stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. That Jesus is this stone that causes people to stumble and he is a rock that makes people fall. And when Isaiah said this, uh, it says that, I'm just going to read a couple of verses. Uh, it's verse 14 that that is quoted here, but I want to read verse 13 with it. In Isaiah chapter 8, verses 13 and 14, it says, The, the Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one that you are to dread. He will be a holy place. For both Israel and Judah, he will be a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. For the people of Jerusalem, he will be a trap and a snare. Many will stumble. They will fall and be broken. They will snare, be snared and captured. And that certainly was true with particularly the chief priests. And they they would have been the the ones that were in the region of Jerusalem. The chief priests, the Sadducees, they lived in the region of Jerusalem, and Jesus was absolutely a snare and a trap for them. He was a rock that made them stumble. And so that quotation Peter applies again. He goes on to say in verse 8, they stumble because they disobey the message which is also what they were destined for. Okay, now he's going to go on, and I want us to catch this really important part. He says, now just continue to wrap your mind around who he's talking to, a mixed church of Jews and Gentiles and probably people of many nationalities, people who are new to faith in Christ, people who, some of whom have been steeped in the traditions of the Jews and many people who have no clue about the traditions of the Jews and listen to what he says all together like you as a collective whole okay verse 9 but you are a chosen people a royal priesthood a holy nation God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Especially the Gentiles lived in deep, deep darkness. Do a little bit of research on your own on the practices of worship to Greek and Roman gods. It is devastating. The practices that they did and called it worship, the things that they thought that their false gods required of them are absolutely devastating and destruction. God called them out of this darkness into wonderful light. And Peter is so bold here to say, you all together are a holy nation. Israel is the holy nation. 
And Peter is inviting people into it. Now, this goes into like Romans 10, 11, uh, 9, 10, and 11, where, you know, the nation of, we are grafted into the nation of Israel. And this should not take away from Israel at all. They are still God's chosen people. I believe the end of Romans 11 when it says all Israel will be saved. I believe that wholeheartedly. This doesn't take anything away from Israel. But what's happening here is that God has opened the door to bring us into his holy nation. This is phenomenal. This is amazing, earth shattering. And then he's saying in verse 10, once you were not a people. But now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You are now the people of God. You are being built into a holy temple. Jesus is the cornerstone on which you stand. Jesus is the rock on which the church is built. And you all are being built together. There are no more differences between you. Jesus broke them down. You are a royal priesthood and a holy nation uh to the to the word priesthood we all are priests now we don't have to go through another priest it says in hebrews uh no sorry the reference i wanted to share with you there's a lot about priests in hebrews but the reference i wanted to share with you here is first timothy 2 5 for there is one god And there is one mediator between God and mankind, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. We have one mediator. We do not need other priests to go in between God and us. Jesus is the only one who needs to mediate between us and the Father. And he is happy to do it. He is interceding for us all the time. And uh, he is our only mediator. We are a chosen people a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, so that we might declare the praises of him who has called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Amen and amen. I hope you join me again uh, soon as we continue on in chapter 2 of First Peter. Have an awesome day. Bye. Bye.